First John chapter 3, we're just going to read this morning one verse. And that's verse 8. First John chapter 3, verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his word to us and apply this to our hearts and speak to us through the power of the Spirit of God. Before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to bless his word. Our Father and our God, now we would pray that as we have the word of God before us, that thou will allow the Spirit of God to take that word, to let the light of that word shine in our hearts, the message of that word grip our hearts, and that we might be helped of our God, not only to be hearers, but that we would be heeders of the word and then doers as well. Lord, we pray that you will now allow this time to be a time with thyself a time when we meet with God, a time when you do business with our hearts and that you lead us to that place where we might truly see Christ and know the good of his ministering to us this day. To this end, I pray that you will help me as thy servant, guide thought and word in all things. We pray that you will glorify yourself. For we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want us to think particularly on the last part of that verse. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I want us to think on that, taking that as our text for today. I want to ask a question as we begin uh, our time this morning, and that is this. What can you and I think on as a truth to take into this new year. It would seem that some new thought or some new measure to embrace would be the thing that is most appropriate. However, sometimes leaning on an old truth serves best when it comes to framing the outlook for the days ahead. For those days have unknown matters and unforeseen issues. Now, remembering the answer to our problem and remembering the power for our work well, that's essential to holding a steady and peaceful course, even in choppy waters. So we are taking the last half of John 1, 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 3 and 8 as our text for the new year. This text reminds us of the foundation of our hope and expectation for the days ahead. Last week, we thought about the Lord Jesus including himself in the payment of what his people owed 
and could not pay. He included himself in the need to pay to Caesar that which is Caesar's. That incident illustrated the truth that the Lord Jesus himself identified with our need to pay to God what is God's as well. He provides the payment by his own power to free us from the consequences of a broken law. This was his purpose for coming to this earth. It was to pay the debt that we owed. This week, we are going to think on the Lord's coming to achieve another end for his people. That is, he came for the purpose of destroying the works and power of the creator of sin and freeing his people from his clutches. I say this is a truth that very much needs to be kept in mind as we approach the days that are ahead. As a vicious roaring lion, the devil has worked and still does to destroy the people of God. That is something that you're going to know and see and experience in this next year. The devil does not stop his work because it turns 12.01 a.m. of the next year. You're going to be facing this. What's the answer? Well, the answer is that the Lord Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, we're going to ask the question, but how did the Lord Jesus destroy the devil's work? And where do we see that victory in our lives? Well, I will say this. It certainly doesn't appear that the Lord Jesus jumps into every circumstance of our life and so alters the matter that the power of the devil falls limply to the ground. The battleground on which the victory of the Lord is seen is not in the outward circumstances of life mainly. Well, there are times when the Lord does in mercy step into our day and with a loving hand deliver us from the things that would harm us. He is very faithful in that way. But how then does he achieve this purpose? And where is this victory to be discerned? Or we might also ask, what is it that is overturned? And how is the victory not merely a possibility, but an absolute certainty for us? Well, that's our subject. That's the question that we're seeking to answer today. And I will suggest this to you as our subject. Christ destroyed the works of the devil by fulfilling the purpose of the Father. Christ destroyed the works of the devil by fulfilling the purpose of the Father. Now the Lord Jesus speaks of this particularly in John chapter 8. In fact, I was very tempted just to take a lengthy portion of John chapter 8 is our text this morning. But let me read you just a few verses from that chapter to establish what I'm saying. John chapter 8, verse 25, it says, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? 
And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Now the great thrust of these verses is that the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the purpose of the Father in paying for sin and bringing his people into such a place with God that the power of sin was broken. Or as the hymn writer says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. But the word that we just read set the framework for how all this was done. Note that as he spoke, many believed on him. As he was in the very moment of speaking about fulfilling the will and purpose of the Father, the power of God falls. And many are saved. Well, that brings us to see the first point of consideration then. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to battle for his people and to deliver them. He does so by fulfilling what the Father has given him to do. Now, I want us to think then on the first point, and that is I want you to think with me about the battleground. The battleground. Where was this battle or where is this battle taking place? Well, as we noted a moment ago, the place where the destruction of the works of the devil is, is not mainly the circumstances of life. And I say this as a warning to us. We must not allow our minds to focus on that arena. Or that we say within ourselves, my deliverance is in the changing of what I face. Or what's going on around me. If the Lord only changed that, then I am in victory. No, sir. No, sir. Do not allow that deception of the devil to grip you. That is a lie of the devil. Your victory in Christ Jesus is not the changing of what you face in your day. And I say if we set our minds on that, we will be led into thinking that is not at all right. The real battleground in which the works of the devil are defeated is the hearts of the people of God. This is a deep heart issue. It's a spiritual issue. It is a matter where Christ comes and ministers 
battles in and battles for the hearts of his people. It is the heart that needs to be set right. It is the heart that needs to be conquered. Now, at this point, I'm just going to simply say the Lord himself illustrates for us in a couple of different ways. In fact, numerous times. I'm just going to pull one. The Lord Jesus offers a parable to his or to the Pharisees and his disciples here, and they don't understand about the nature of what is in man and how that affects man. And it says in Mark 7 that when they come into the house that the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples, and this is what we hear, and he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into a man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly and goeth out into the draft, purging all meats. And he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. The Lord Jesus is establishing here that the place where all the issues, the place where Satan must be defeated is in the heart of the people of God. On the other side of this, if you want to take it in a, in a different light, but it's equally powerful, Paul puts it this way in Romans 10. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. So you have the Lord Jesus saying the heart is the place where all the destructive powers of Satan are collected and they prove themselves by how they come out of a man. Paul is saying it's that very same place that must be transformed. And when it is transformed by the power of the Spirit of God, then that man has a heart that is made righteous by God. The whole battleground is indeed the heart. And let me say this. The devil's chief goal is to turn the heart of the people of God from God to love and practice evil and thus destroy the soul. I'm telling you that particular statement, that truth explains to you what John is saying here in 1 John chapter 3 when he talks about those that are born of God do not commit sin. There's the point. The devil is seeking to turn the hearts of men away from God that they would practice and love evil to the point of the destruction of their soul. There is the battleground. Now, why is it such a battleground? Why is this place the heart? Why is it that our heart is the central focus of the wicked one? Can't he do things outside of us? Let me say this. Two big reasons why the heart is the place where the battle exists. Number one, man's chief end involves the heart. What's your chief end? Well, you all know the answer. But the scripture puts it to us in this way. The Scriptures that back up the catechism question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The scripture that backs that up is Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know these verses. We've memorized them. 
What is your chief command? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. The place where you and I fulfill the chiefest of all commands, the first of all commands, the most important of all commands, is it takes place in the heart that we are to love the Lord our God. Satan's chief goal is to keep you from doing that. And let me say this. You and I, by ourselves, are A, not able to love God as we ought, and B, we cannot resist the devil on this, on this particular subject. But Christ Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How was that? Because Christ did come and did love the Father and did fulfill all that was needed that you and I might be able to have that particular commandment fulfilled for us and in us. I can now say, honestly, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has done that for me. I mean, I'm not patting myself. There's nothing about me that I can pat myself on the back. Christ has fulfilled that for me. There was a battleground that I was completely unable to hold. Again, let me say this, and I say this emphatically, and this is why I want you to hear me, and this is why we must have this focus going into this next year. The greatest desire, the chiefest goal, and the most endless work of the devil are to keep the people of God from loving the Lord. That is what, you no, know, no, he's going to try to destroy me by making me greedy or making me hateful. Or, no, the devil, those things the devil said, ah, who cares about that? My chief goal is to keep you from loving the Lord your God. If he can keep that from happening, he's won all the other things. And I say this, he will put every foul thing before you to keep you from loving your God. Do not forget this. Do not forget this. You don't need some new message. You need to understand the old message. The devil is going to seek to destroy your love for God by putting every single foul thing that he can in front of your heart. To keep you from doing what is the first and great command. The second thing. Not only is man's chief end and the first commandment of God involved with the heart. But the second thing is this. The issues of life are determined by the heart. What you and I do, what you and I think, what you and I say, how we act, where we go, what we do, what we invest in with our time and with our resources. All of these things are determined by our heart. You know, the wisdom of Solomon makes this clear when he says in Proverbs 3, you know these verses, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. 
In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Solomon is simply saying, you know where the whole matter of your life's direction sits? It doesn't sit in the circumstances that you find playing themselves out in your life. It resides in the heart. How am I to see good in my days? You know, the psalmist in Psalm 34 gives us a lesson on this. How am I to see good in my days? And again, it's not by my reforming myself. Let me say this, because at the beginning of the year, everybody is about reforming themselves. Your finding good in this next year is not tied to your reforming your lifestyle. The psalmist gives us a lesson. Psalm 34. In fact, listen to the, listen to the words here. It almost sounds like he's calling us to a lesson. Here. Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So what's the lesson? What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Okay, subject at hand. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. That's verse 18. The matter is a matter of the heart. Do you want to see good in your days? What's the psalmist say? I'm going to teach you the lesson. The lesson about fearing you fear God in your heart and you do these things because you fear God. It is in the heart that matters arise that pulls the man of God the child of God into defeat and the devil knows this what goes on in your heart leads you to do foolish things how many times do we see this played out in scripture I was thinking about uh, my readings through second chronicles you maybe are on that schedule and have been reading through there. And you read about the different kings, particularly the kings of Judah is what I'm thinking about. And it says this king didn't do right, but this king did do right. And then another one didn't do right. And then you had another one that did do right better than the ones that had been before him. Those kinds of things were said. And I was thinking about these different kings. And then you stop and you think, well, how did they end up? Think about it with me. I'm going to give you a list and I don't even have to say David because David certainly was a man after God's own heart. And how many foolish things did David do because of something that rose up in his heart that caused him to fall? Certainly you'd say, well, that was evident with Bathsheba. That was evident in the numbering of the people. But let me just list these others for you. King Solomon. Nobody had a kingdom that even came close to reflecting in glory what Solomon's did. But what does it say of Solomon at his end? 
that he was led away by many strange wives. Not meaning that they were odd. It means that they were godless. Perhaps you remember the name Joash. Joash was that one that was preserved by his aunt, who was the wife of the high priest Jehoiada. She was spared, or he was spared, when Athaliah killed all, the, all of his brothers. But she didn't realize that Joash was still alive. Joash was brought up in the house of Jehoiada, the priest. And at one point, then he's presented as the king. The people shout, Athaliah screams treason. They put away Athaliah. And Joash now grows up under the influence and the ministry and the teaching of Jehoiada, his uncle and high priest. And when you get to the end of the life of, jo of Joash, what's it say about him? That he was so taken up with himself in the council of the princes that he went ahead and murdered all of the sons of Jehoiada. How does a man get to that place? Change of heart. Let me list some other ones. King Uzziah. Uzziah was a godly man. It says that he did many righteous things. Well, what happened with Uzziah? In pride, Uzziah decided he was going to offer incense instead of the priest. And he became a leper and died in a leper's house. You think of Hezekiah. Nobody loved God like Hezekiah. The scripture says that. He, 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 even perhaps you would compare him to David in that matter. But Hezekiah was a man who loved God with all his heart. But what happened with Hezekiah and his end? He got so proud, he decided, guess what? You know what? Nobody's going to throw over my kingdom. Nobody's going to. I can show all these Babylonian spies my treasures and what I have. See how great I am? He became a fool because of the pride in his heart. You think of Josiah. Again, Josiah was one. The, it speaks of Josiah as that king that reinstituted the Passover, and there was no other Passover that was ever experienced in Solomon's day, in David's day, all the way back through to the time of Samuel. Nobody had the observance with the glory and the holiness to it of the Passover observance that Joash did, or excuse me, Josiah did. But in his end, what happens? Pharaoh Necho comes out of Egypt, says, I'm going to attack some of the southern kingdoms that are not in, Ju in, in Judah at all. But perhaps a ways away, Josiah says, I know what I'll do. I'll go out and I'll fight against them. And Pharaoh Necho says, wait a minute, I've had a revelation from God that I'm to do this. Don't fight against God. Josiah says, well, that doesn't matter to me. I'm going to. Josiah did not ask the counsel of the Lord. He did not have the help of the Lord. And though he was a man that God had blessed immensely, he goes out and in battle takes, think about this, he takes the same tactic that Ahab, you remember Ahab, the king of Israel, wicked king Ahab, married to Jezebel. When Jehoshaphat and Ahab go into battle, Jehosh uh, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to disguise myself. You wear the king's robe. You think, Jehoshaphat, you're an idiot. What do you, He's putting you in the place where everybody's going to have their eyes on you, and I'm going to be able to go around and nobody's going to be able to detect me. I think Josiah thought, hey, now that was a great tactic. I'm going to do this very same thing. I'm going to be Ahab number two. I'll go into battle in disguise. And guess what happened? He was Ahab number two because the exact same thing happened to him that happened to Ahab. An archer pulls a, a bow to venture, lets an arrow go, hits him. He goes back into the city and dies. Why does that happen? 
because the heart of a man forgets God is taken up with himself. The devil's battleground with each of these was their heart. Jehoshaphat, how can, can you understand? Jehoshaphat was a man who saw incredible answers of God to his problems, and yet he had such a love for Ahab and the apostates that when Ahab says, hey, I want to go up and fight again, I think it was Ramoth Gilead. Uh, Jehoshaphat, will you go with me? Oh, yeah, we'll go. My horses are just your horses. My men are your men. You know, all this. No, they're not, Jehoshaphat. No, they're not. Quite frankly, those horses are God's horses. Quite frankly, the kingdom is God's. It's not yours to say, oh, I'm his. But here he goes. And eventually, Jehoshaphat loses out with God and finds an end that's less than noble. We say, why are you saying that? I'm just trying to establish with you the truth that the devil's battleground to seek to destroy the people of God is in their hearts, not their circumstances. And the battleground which the Lord Jesus fights and wins And you and I ought to say, praise God. He wins in the battleground of my heart. Because he sends the spirit of God. That makes us new creatures. That brings light when there was darkness. That brings faith when there was unbelief. And now I have within my heart that which is greater than is in the world. Greater is he that is in you. Where is he? Wait a minute. In me? Where? In my heart. Greater is he that is in my heart than he that is in the world. Why? Because Christ Jesus has fought on that battleground and has won the day. The Father sent him to do this. Now, that leads me to my second point, and that is this, the battle. The battle. We need to ask, what does the devil do or say that so wrecks the heart? What is the battle? What is the issue? Well, coming back to John chapter 8, I mentioned earlier that I probably should have taken more from that text in John 8, but I'm going to read this to you. The Lord Jesus himself tells us who the devil is and what he's all about. In John 8 and 44, in the condemnation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that were gathered against the Lord Jesus, he says this of them and then also of the devil. He says, ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. So there's two characteristics that we see particularly in this 
statement of the Lord Jesus that shows us who the devil really is and particularly what the battle is. First, the Lord Jesus says he is a murderer. He is a murderer. Well, we'd have to ask, well, who did he murder? Well, the Lord doesn't explain that. But we can be sure that the devil is filled with all-consuming hatred. I want you to understand that hatred and murder are two sides of the same coin. He is all-consuming hatred, and he would, I say this plainly, and you know this too probably, if he could, the devil would murder God. He proved that by attempting to murder Christ. Now, he thought he did there for a while. He probably thought he did. He didn't. But here's the other thing. Therefore, we must understand he means to murder the saints of God. Not If he can do it physically, that's fine with him. But more so, can he murder in the hearts so that those that he would seek to destroy are destroyed? Again, I say hatred is inextricably tied to murder. And for that truth, I'm going to say this. This is why John, in this very chapter that we're taking our text from, just a couple of verses later, verse 15, says this. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. John is saying to have this hatred is equal to murder because that is the characteristic of the devil. That is what the devil is seeking to do in the hearts of the people of God. Now there's different ways in which murder can be applied. You can apply that to others that are in the world. You can apply that maybe even to your own circumstances or lack thereof. Hatred, anger, malice. Covetousness. How is this murder, hatred, whatever, how that the devil would seek to implant like he did in the heart of Cain? How is it that this is ridden from the heart of a child of God? Well, the answer is to yield to Christ. To yield to Christ. Again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John, 1 John 3 and 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. You say, wait a minute, that almost sounds like the second half of what the Lord says is the, is the first and greatest commandment, doesn't it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Here it is. Satan would seek to make us all a bunch of murderers. There's a battle. But the Lord Jesus comes and says, no, this is the commandment. As I have loved you, so love one another.
This is not the ooey-gooey love of the humanist or the humanitarian. This is a love that first centers itself in God and then radiates out to those who are Christ's own people. There is the battle. The devil would seek to make us to be haters and murderers, if you will. The second thing you see is this. The Lord Jesus characterizes and explains that the devil is a liar. He is a liar. Here again, uh, perhaps you would say, well, that first point, you know, I don't feel myself consumed with hatred. Well, of course you wouldn't if the spirit of God was in you. You can't. The Lord won't let you stay there. But we are susceptible to this second part of what Satan does, the second part of this battle, and that has to do with the lies of Satan. And let me say this. Satan's lies are cunningly suggested to our hearts. He's been at this a long time. Well, we might ask, well, what are they mainly? What are Satan's lies mainly that would cause me to be defeated and would, if I were able to be destroyed by them, that they would destroy me? Let me just suggest a couple to you. First, and I think perhaps your heart will resonate to this. Satan's lie, first and foremost, is that God is a liar. Not that he's a liar, but that God is a liar. God is a cheat and not to be trusted. In other words, you hear something like, you know what? God hasn't really done you very fairly, has he? His word is not truth. His word, his word. Oh, that's just fanciful stuff. Fanciful at best, but here I think it's more likely deceitful. God is a liar. That, I say, is something that you and I hear when we look at our circumstances and they don't line up with our wants. We tend to be very susceptible to that lie that God is somehow deceiving me or what God has said is somehow not trustworthy. Another lie. See if this doesn't sound familiar. You, well, you are pretty great and deserve much more than you have. And you know, it's just amazing how many of us have that lie come to our hearts and we're there going, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, uh uh uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. Oh, that's right. Yeah. What are you anyway? You and I will never, ever be anything other than sinners saved by grace. We're nothing. We don't deserve anything. And everything that we do have is the pure blessing and gift of God. For every good gift and perfect gift, not just some, but every one that is a good gift and a perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. Let me suggest you another. By the way, that particular um, lie was the downfall of Eve. You know, you're, 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 you're just as good as God, but God doesn't want you to be like him. You deserve much more than him. Go ahead and eat that fruit because 
that will make you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be. But go ahead because you are great, Eve. Third, a lie, and I think you and I have heard this one. Sin may have dangers, but it's glorious if you can get away with it. Not just enjoyable, but glorious. Let me, uh, and that when I say perhaps, you know the things that John says, um, that all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I think that you can assign that one to the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh. But here's one. Here's another lie. You are well able to judge for yourself and act as your own authority. Who has the right to tell you what to do anyway? I mean, you're just as good as anybody else. I mean, you can judge just as good as anybody else. You are your own authority. What you say is true is true. And what you deem as false or foolishness, well, then it's got to be because that's, after all, what you think. Pride of life. Pride of life. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, the scripture says. Yeah. The man that says, I can judge for myself. I don't need to. I can tell you what's right and right. I can tell you what's true. No, you can't. No, you can't because your heart is deceitful. Above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? You can't know your own heart. You can't even begin to know your own heart. How are you supposed to judge the things that you see? Also, see if this one doesn't resonate. You are, oh, I don't want to have to say it. I really hate to have to say it, but you are a forgotten man. God has forgotten you. God doesn't care. There is no hope for you. You better just as well get used to the truth. All these are lies. The devil is a liar. He's the father of it. Here I say is the battle because the Lord Jesus, when he came, came to do away with all that. The battle that Christ wins is that he brings by the power of the Holy Spirit truth to our hearts. Truth. John 8, again, 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All these things, the devil's lies, the Lord Jesus brings the truth of God and by the power of the Spirit of God allows it to be applied to our hearts so that we see what is true, we believe what is true, and we are made free from the bondage of the devil's lies. Christ came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That which he does in our hearts as a murderer and as a liar. Well, I'm going to finish by looking at what I call the battle cry. 
We've seen the battleground. We've seen the battle. Now let's notice the battle cry. For this, I would turn your attention to Matthew chapter 3. And this is a statement that is not made amongst men or by men or written by men, even though we know the scriptures were written by God himself. But hear the voice that comes from heaven. Here is the battle cry. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's the cry. There's the battle cry. In whom I am well pleased. The Father is pleased with Jesus. That's our battle cry. No matter what you say, Satan, you can say all you want to about me. You can say all you want to about my circumstances. You can say what you want to. But here's the point that you can't refute. The Father is pleased with Jesus. Now I'm going to say that voice from heaven came not because the Father was emphasizing the relationship that existed from eternity. This was mainly the Father's statement that he was well pleased with the work that the Son had done in fulfilling the purpose of God. Christ has come and he has fulfilled in a life of purity and perfection that which was demanded of God of all men, but he has done it entirely, and I am well pleased. We might also add to that the Lord Jesus has pleased the Father in offering himself and obtaining all the graces, mercies, and blessings of the Father by his perfect life and perfect atonement. Now I want to set before you a verse that explains more vividly, perhaps, the whole of the battle cry. Why I say that the Father pleased with Christ is our battle cry. And that is Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. Exodus 12 and 13, it says there, actually it's in the middle of the verse, but it says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. There's the point. The Father says, I see the blood, and I have determined now that my people will not be destroyed. You say, what's the point? Here's what I'm trying to get to. The Lord Jesus now is our great high priest who is ever before the throne of God, presents his blood, the cost of the atonement. He presents it before the throne of God. In other words, I want to put it this way. He interposes his blood between us and the destruction of sin and the devil. Between me and destruction. Between me and the works of the devil. Between me and all the things that the devil is trying to do to me. Is put the blood of the Lord Jesus. I only have one real thought on this point, And that is this. I want to ask you a question. How does the Father esteem the blood of his son. I want you to think with me on that. 
How does the father esteem the blood of his son? When the father sees the blood, how does he act? Well, let me put it to you this way. I suggest to you that because of the sight of the blood, the father of glory cannot remain unmoved. In fact, let me just read to you, may not be entirely on the same point, but boy, it sure is close. If you look at Psalm 30, excuse me, Psalm 18, Psalm 18, I want to read you just a couple of verses there that I think is saying what I'm trying to say. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. You say, what are you saying? God the Father is wroth with the devil and all the evil that he is trying to use to destroy those that have been put under the blood of his well-beloved son. At the intercession then of the Lord Jesus as he holds up his blood, the Lord arises. You say, what? Yes, sir. The Lord Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How does he do that? As I said, by fulfilling the purpose of God. What is the purpose of God? That our sins would be put away by the shedding of the blood of Christ. So here you have it. The Lord Jesus then sees the need of his people and he lifts, as it were, up his blood to the Father's eyes. And the Father says, I cannot ignore I will not ignore, and I will show my wrath upon evil and upon this wicked serpent. And so our God usually does one of two things that you and I will see. Number one, he intervenes. He intervenes in our fight with the devil and his destroying efforts. And our God supplies uh, irresistible mercy. I want you to think about that term. Irre, not irresistible grace, irresistible mercy and efficacious grace. He gives to me mercies that cannot be put away. He cannot, the devil can't say, you don't deserve that mercy. Oh, well, listen here. The mercies of our God are sure mercies. They are irresistible. There's no power in heaven earth or hell that can say that mercy will not accomplish what the heart of God means for it to accomplish. My God will be merciful. He delights in mercy. He intervenes with mercy. And then he pours out his graces that work, that do what he sends them forth to do. 
God intervenes when he arises, but then you also see this. He keeps. He keeps. This is the whole point of John chapter 10, verse 28. When the Lord Jesus is exclaiming how he gives life to his sheep, how he and his father are one. And then he makes the statement there in verse 28. No man is able to pluck my people out of my father's hand. He keeps. Why does he keep? Because the fingers of God, if you will, are sealed around us by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So, having said this, the whole point to remember for this next year, the Father sees the blood work of the Lord Jesus and is well pleased. Remember that. Number two, remember that Christ will not be allowed to be mocked. The Father has determined that the Lamb of God will not be mocked. And third, our God will arise and destroy the works of the devil. You and I can lean on these truths. These are old truths. They're not new in marble. They are old truths, but so much the foundation of our hope. They are the truths that we can rest upon. And may God allow us to do so for his grace. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will allow now the word of God to do that within our hearts. The work that you sent it forth to do. Lord, may our rest be in the work of the Lord Jesus. May our trust be there. And may we be those who are wise to the works and lies of the devil. Lord, now I pray that you will keep these thy people, walk with them through the course of this day, keep us close to thy heart, we would pray. Continue to speak to us for Jesus' sake, we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.